Georgie. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 6, where we were last week. And uh, as you uh, should be aware of now, last week we started one of the most profound studies, I think, that's found in all of the Bible. And uh, it, it deals with the aspect of the six things that, that God hates. And uh, we talked about how that... Uh, hang on a second here. We talked about how that... Uh, it talked about a proud look. And then the Bible said a lying tongue. And then hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift and running to mischief. A false witness... And then the seventh one, the Bible says, uh, he that soweth discord among the brethren. And it was the seventh one that made uh, all of these an abomination to the Lord. And we now know from our study last week that the sowing discord, we know it is gossip. The Bible talks about it as slander or tail-bearing. Uh, but in a practical sense, and we talked about this last week, uh, it's, it's as simple as this. The Bible says, Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, that there, are, that there will be Christians in the Christianity that will uh, cause division among us. And the Bible makes it very clear in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they uh, are as such, serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Now, the Bible has a the Bible has a format by which you deal with problems with other people. And you're not going to get any church or any family that doesn't have issues that come up from time to time. And the Bible makes it very clear that uh, you take that issue that you have to that person. You never take it to someone who cannot solve the problem. You always take it to the person that you have the problem with. Always a number of red flags you'll want to look out for. Red flag number one would be always be suspicious of someone who simply won't do that. And you're going to find that there are Christians, people who claim to be Christians, I am not doubting that they are, who will have a problem with somebody, but instead of going to that person, they'll go to everybody else. Now, if you take it to that person, and that person won't hear you on the matter, then the Bible says you take it to the church leadership uh, but it stays within the church structure. Second red flag, and you see this from time to time, people will say, well, I didn't do that because it won't do any good to go to that person. You don't do it because it will necessarily do good or not. You do it because that's what the Bible says we're supposed to do. Uh, you know, it, that's just the way it goes. People who will slander other people will always be people that you want to avoid. You want to mark. Bible says uh, that they're an abomination to the Lord, no matter how they try to portray themselves. And then here's this third red flag. And boy, you get this a lot. You get the mystery person. Well, somebody told me this, but I can't tell you who it was. That's not biblical either. You can't solve problems unless you know how to go to solve the problem. And the number one concept about the Bible is solving problems. That's what the Bible's for. So we learned some great principles uh, out of the book of Proverbs last week on understanding how to deal with the aspect of these seven things and uh, how to avoid them and to keep us from getting caught up into things like this. 
Now today, as I told you last week, I want to approach this from a prophetic standpoint. I want to come at it from a doctrinal application. Now, all of these seven things, doctrinally, when you come through the Bible, in Proverbs chapter 6, all of this deals with the nation of Israel and how the devil hates the nation of Israel and how the devil wants to destroy them. I'm going to show you one of the most amazing things that you're ever going to see today. When I was a young man years ago, and I began to learn my Bible and study my Bible, I'll never forget one time when I saw this. It was laid out to me in a Bible study, just like we lay many things out to you in Bible study. It was one of the most amazing things that I ever saw in my life. And it's things like this that really make the Bible come alive. You'll remember from Exodus chapter 4, when we looked at the nation of Israel many, many times, the Bible says as a nation that the nation of Israel is God's son, as a corporate nation. And you're going to find that uh, uh, I told you last week in Matthew chapter 12, uh, I read your story in Matthew where it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he looketh through the dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then, he, then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Now that man there that he's talking about is the nation of Israel in a prophetic sense. Notice the last part of the verse I read there. This generation. That's Israel. He's talking to Israel in Matthew chapter 12. And I showed you how that uh, the devil hates the nation of Israel. And these seven things found in Proverbs make up the unclean character or the nature of the devil and how he operates. And of course, when when you look at this, you see and understand from a prophetic standpoint how much the devil hates the people of God. Just like many saved people will hate God's people, and, uh, and, and slander them just as the devil uh, tries to destroy the nation of Israel. Now, I want you to look at a passage here to kind of set the theme for where we're going today. If you would turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we're well in the tribulation period at this point, and it's a great, great chapter that shows what I'm talking about, how that the devil hates the nation of Israel. And here's what it says, 12.1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and had cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's three and a half years. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. 
And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Let's pray. Father, help us today to uh, see the great impact of this great passage in the Bible. Like everything in the Bible, Lord, there's so many things here that we need to see. But help us focus today and see uh, the parallels between uh, what we go through in our lives and what the nation of Israel will go through in their great time of trouble. And we'll thank you today and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the breakdown of this passage is, is pretty easy to see. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, you have a woman. That woman will be the nation of Israel. If there's any doubt in your mind about that, you just want to go back to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 10, and it tells you very clearly uh, who this woman is. And then you have, you have the second thing you want to see here is you have the birth of Christ. And uh, it says here that uh, the devil wanted to, wanted to destroy uh, the child that this woman was going to bring forth. That child is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it says down here that the, he wanted to devour them. That'll be Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. You remember your story, don't you? How Herod wanted to destroy uh, the Christ. And so what did he do? He killed all the babies from two years and down. That's what he's talking about here, showing you how much the devil hates uh, the, not only the nation of Israel, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 and 5, the man-child, that's Christ. Uh, one of the things that you're going to find uh, is that anytime you find the man-child or the word man-child in the Bible, got to look at it. It's always going to be a, refer a, a re uh, reference to Christ. Look at verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. All the tribulation period here. Now the devil persecutes Israel to wipe them out. Look at a little bit farther on in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman. That's Israel now, which brought forth the man-child. And, two, and the, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years, by the way. And this is all dealing with the nation of Israel. And the thing that I want you to see is how the devil hates the nation of Israel. And he hates Israel for two reasons. One, because they get the former kingdom that was his. In our study of the pillars that we've come through and the dispensations we've come through, a lot of this ought to make sense to you now. We now know that there was a time when Satan wasn't called Satan. He was called Lucifer. You'll find this in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. But he fell. And when he fell, the Bible says now he becomes Satan. And Israel, the nation of Israel, gets everything that he had. So he hates the nation of Israel for that. Then the second reason he hates the nation of Israel is because the Lord Jesus Christ comes from the nation of Israel. That's really what you have in, Matthew, in Revelation chapter 12. The devil knows that Christ is the true heir. The devil knows that Christ is the one who is going to inherit the kingdoms, inherit all the kingdoms of the earth. So he's focused to destroy the nation of Israel. Now, today, as in the Old Testament, here's what the devil does. He uses his nations that follow him, the nations that are align with him, who follow his lusts, to do all the things that he wants them to do to destroy the nation of Israel. Just as in the parallel now, 
He'll use some of God's people in the New Testament to destroy the work of God today. But in the Old Testament, we see it Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. We see Greece and Rome. Those were all nations in the Old Testament that the devil used to try to wipe out and persecute and destroy the nation of Israel. Hey, in the New Testament, the times that we live in, we see it today in the Muslim world. Iraq and Iran, Egypt, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, I mean, Kurdistan. I don't know who Stan was, but he named a lot of countries over there after himself, I'm going to tell you. Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the Palestinian nations, and all of those things. Today, they're against the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9 and 11 tells us that God, no matter what the devil does, will prevail. And the nation of Israel will prevail. Just like you and I in a New Testament sense will prevail. And of course, it goes back with them to the covenant that God gave to Abraham. So when you see all of that, you begin to understand why the devil has such a problem with the nation of Israel. You now better understand that when we look at these six things here in Proverbs chapter 6, these are the character traits, the unholy spirit. The, the character traits of the devil that he, he displays down through history. It's an amazing thing. Now, last week I read you this passage here in chapter uh, 6, verse 16 through 19. Let's read it again. These six things doth the Lord hate. We're in Proverbs 6, verse 16 now. Yea, seven are abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now, it's Memorial Day weekend. We're all kind of laid back today. And um, this is a great time for you to give, for some of you older Christians, to give yourself a test. Now, if you're a young Christian, hey, I'll give you five years or less. If you've been saved five years or less, you can do this if you want, but don't beat yourself up over it. But if you've been saved longer than that, and you've been around here that long at least, this is a great little test to give yourself. I'm going to show you how these seven things span the length of your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, dealing with the devil's attack on the nation of Israel to destroy them. It's one of the most unbelievable, profound things you'll ever see in the Bible. And if you've been around here long enough now, you get your piece of paper. You don't have to put your name on it. We'll pass them across the aisle here in a little bit, and other people can grade you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Write these down. See if you can figure out where I'm going before I take you there, because this is pretty incredible. And, you know, I've told you before that the Bible uh, will always have a couple of different applications. It'll have a historical application. We know that when Solomon wrote Proverbs, he's writing this to his own son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam didn't do much with it because Rehoboam turned out to be a mess. But we also know from a practical side, it's a picture of things that you and I need to do. So we looked at that last week, and I showed you these seven things, how they impact us as Christians today. But then in a prophetic sense, in a doctrinal sense, This is all dealing with the nation of Israel. The Antichrist is filled through the book of Proverbs. Many of the things that he does, many of the ways that he does those things are laid out in the book of Proverbs as the book of Psalms, as the book of Job. 
And what I want to show you now is these seven things, these seven characteristics of the devil that you can plot a course from Genesis to Revelation by these seven things. Pretty incredible. Well, let's get to work on it here. And if you want to take a little test, you can get your paper out here and be ready to go. But let's examine each one of them. Now, the first thing he says here, the first thing he says is a proud look. Now, that'll take us back from, to Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 1, 2, won't it? Where Lucifer fell and he became Satan. You remember, we've talked about it before in Isaiah where it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? It says, For thy hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation of the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You see the devil's problem? It's pride. He's full of himself. Five times he said, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this. I'm going to ascend up to heaven. I'm going to do this. He's full of himself. And that's characteristic of pride. So when it says that the first thing that he lists is pride, if you want to go to the first place in the Bible where you find that showing up with the devil, it's way back in Genesis chapter 1-1. Ezekiel chapter 28 says this, Thou wast perfect in thy way from the day thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore will I cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Here it comes. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Two things. Heart lifted up because of his beauty and his wisdom corrupted by his brightness. It's pride. And you know what the Bible says, Proverbs 16, 8. Pride uh, goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's exactly what the devil had. He had pride that lifted him up. Before he fell, he had everything that God uh, wanted him to be and do. The Bible says that he was perfect in his ways before iniquity was found in him. He had all of God's kingdom and seems like from our past studies, he was all of, all, over all of God's creation until pride got into his world. I've seen many a child of God. I've seen many a preacher. I've seen many a person come to the place where they go along well, they get good, they get a little knowledge, they get a little wisdom, they get a little Bible under the belt, and then, boy, pride swells them up and puffs them up, and, brother, you see it all the time. And that was the number one problem the devil had, so that's the first one. Now look at the second one. Second thing he says here, a lying tongue. Now, where are we going to put that one? That'll be Genesis chapter 3. Now, it says there, Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Now, God has created Adam and Eve, and he's put them down in the garden. And now the devil shows up to the woman in chapter 3, and he says, Yea, hath God said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden. You notice that's not a statement. It's a question mark. And you notice something else? It's a lie. That's not what God told them. God said in chapter 2, verse 16, you could eat of all of them except the two that he told them not to. 
But here the devil says, uh, God has said, you shall not eat of every tree. That's not what he said. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. See? What's the devil say? Verse 4, and the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now the first lie in your Bible is right there. The first, just like the first sin in the Bible wasn't Adam and Eve, the first sin in the Bible was pride with Lucifer who became the devil. The first lie in your Bible, the first lie in your Bible is right there. Remember the verse we had over there in John chapter 8, verse 44 last week? Ye of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you would do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and bow not on the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. Right there it is. He lied to her. He lied to her. He lied to her because he did not want her to do what God said because of the devil again. He knows. He knows that if Adam and Eve does what's right, this whole thing's going to kick off and this whole thing's going to go and God's going to establish his kingdom and it's going to be on its way. And so the old friend of the family shows up in Genesis chapter 3. He lies and destroys the plan of God by getting Adam and Eve to do what God told them not to do. And when we lie, it goes right back to our old father, the devil. He's a liar, the Bible says, and the father of them. God had told them, in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. The devil says, you're not going to die. He says, yea, hath God said, put a question mark after it. When God says something, he never puts it in a form of a question. He puts it in a form of a statement. It's the devil that will get you to question God's word. Now, that's another red flag. Anybody you go to, talk to, anybody that teaches you the Bible, and they put a question mark where God put a period, you better watch where they're getting their material from. Not hard. Now, look at the third one. Hands that shed innocent blood. Now, you know where you find this one? Well, you find this one right down there in Genesis chapter 4. And Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the first things of his flock of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why hast thou countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desires, and thou shalt rule over him. Hey, it's... It, this is one of the most amazing things in the Bible. Now, here's the deal. Cain and Abel. One of them tills the ground. He's a great farmer. Got a fruit market down at the city market. The other one is a, is a he tends sheep. And it came time for, for them to bring an offering to the Lord. There's a great story here. And Abel, he goes down and takes one of the first things of the flock. He kills it, and he puts it on the altar, and God says, that's exactly what I wanted. It's going to take something innocent, to cover your sin. So you did the right thing. You went and got a lamb or a sheep and you brought it up, you killed it and you offered it to me, I'll accept it. Now Cain on the other hand, Cain on the other hand, 
He brings in a truckload in his pickup truck and his new Ford 150. He brings in a whole bed of fruits and vegetables that he done. They look great. I mean, some of the greatest fruit you ever saw in your life and vegetables. He backs that thing up and comes down there and says, Lord, here's my sacrifice to you. God says, I can't accept that, Cain. Now, here's the picture. You know why God couldn't accept it? Because the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And you know as well as I do that something innocent has to die for you and I to get our sins covered. So he had respect unto Abel's, but not to Cain, because Cain bringing in his fruits of his labor is a picture of you and me trying to cover my salvation by works. And that'll never, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy has he saved us. So he doesn't accept it. Mean old God, huh? Mean old God, how hard he worked, how he sweated, how he, how he probably prayed over that fruit to get it out of the ground. And then God won't take it. But I want you to see that passage. You know what God said? The Bible says that Cain's countenance fell. You ever see somebody's countenance fall? <laughs> you can tell in a minute, it's not going to be a good day. His countenance fell. And God saw it, and he says, why is thou countenance fallen? And you don't obviously get the whole conversation here probably, but I can just hear Cain, because I've heard a lot of Cains tell me why their countenance has fallen. And he's going off and off and off about, well, you know what? I worked so hard and all this, and boy, I prayed for rain, and you know, I asked you to bless it, and I asked you to this, and I worked till midnight, and I was up all night last night cutting this stuff up, putting it in the truck, and bringing it up here to you, and I just don't understand why you won't accept it. And I'm sure God said, don't, don't you ever listen to the stories your daddy tells? Don't you know that when they sinned in the garden, and they knew they were naked, the first thing they did was run out to the fig tree and sew them aprons of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And don't you know I didn't accept that either? Don't you know I made garments for them that I killed something innocent and I covered their nakedness by the shedding of blood? Didn't your daddy ever tell you that? Sure he did. Say, how do you know he did? Because Abel got it. And then he says this, but it's okay, Cain. I know you're upset. I know you're mad. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Nice fruits and vegetables. Nice bananas. Great. Make a nice fruit salad out of it for mom and dad. But here's what I'll do, pal. You go get one of those lambs from your brother, and you bring it, and you offer the right sacrifice, I'll accept it. Thank you, Lord. Cain wouldn't do it. Now, the Bible gives us a little insight here because it tells us in the book of 1 John, it tells us that Cain is of that wicked one. 1 John 3, 12. And here's a place where the devil sees an opportunity one more time to stop and wipe out the line of Christ and the line of the nation of Israel. He knows that Christ has to come from somebody. He knows it has to be Adam and Eve. He knows now it probably is going to be Abel. So the devil has his partner in crime, Cain, of that wicked one, kill Abel. 
And he thinks now, I've stopped the seed. It's like a movie I saw one time. I can't remember the name of it. But some guy went back in time and killed his great, 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 grandfather. Then come back in time and realized he wasn't there anymore. Because he wiped out the one who was going to bring the seed down the line. That's what the devil's trying to do here. If you and me are on the up and up, I'm worrying about me. I'm kind of looking at some of you this morning. But if you and me are on the up and up, and God says that's the wrong thing you did, but you go get the right one and it'll be okay, who wouldn't do that? Cain wouldn't. Look at the rest of the part of that passage. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Oh, I bet that was some conversation. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And by the shedding of innocent blood of Abel, he thought, the devil thought he won. But the line doesn't come through Abel, it comes through Seth. Look again now, John 8, 44, ye of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Right there it is. These things are incredible. They show us how the devil, down through the history of the world, down through the history of Israel, and down certainly through the history of the Bible, these seven characteristics have displayed themselves as the devil tries to wipe and stop out the nation of Israel. Now, you know that you know that most of God's people are murderers? That's something we don't like to think about. We don't like murderers, don't like to be around murderers. But some of the most wicked murderers I ever met in my life were God's people. And they never took a gun, they never took a knife, they never took a ball bath, they never, took a, never poisoned anybody. You see, the Bible says, I mean, the, the Bible says, if you, if whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. When you hate somebody in your heart, that's where sin starts. God doesn't ever look at the action, God looks at the heart. Now, somebody else may have hated somebody and killed somebody, but a child of God who hates somebody in their heart and never does the act, God equates it with murder. Well, I've met God, some of God's people look made Alvis Carpenter and Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde look like, uh, um, you know, amateurs. I've met some of God's people over the years that have made uh, Pretty Boy Floyd and made, uh, uh, you know, Charles Manson look like poster children. We get strange ideas, don't we? Now look at the next one, number four. A heart that devises wicked imagination. Now, this ought to be easy for everybody. Well, that brings us up to Genesis chapter 6, right up to Genesis chapter 11. I mean, Genesis chapter 6, 5, in Noah's time, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, here's again where the devil comes down in Genesis chapter 6. He brings the sons of God down in Genesis chapter 6. They marry the sons of men, and, they, and the devil again wants to take over the whole world. And when he takes over the whole world, the whole world's imagination goes down the tubes. There probably was four and a half billion people on planet Earth at the time of the flood, and the Bible said there was only eight that was righteous. And yet the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. This is why you see a lot of what you see today. 
people look around all the time and say, what is wrong with this world that we live in? And there's certainly some things that are wrong with it. I mean, every day you turn on the news or you open up the newspaper and you just scratch your head and you wonder what in the world is going on. And it's easy to blame it on the Republicans or to blame it on the Democrats, but I'm going to tell you right now, it, you, blame it on, you blame it on God's people and you blame it on preachers who have quit preaching the Word of God about 40 years ago that keeps the nation clean because that Bible being preached is like a preservative salt that holds society together. That's where it started. Amen. And that's where it's at today. We got anarchy running today. We got a time when, when, when all the thoughts of the world are only evil continually, just like Genesis chapter 6. And you know what happened? God dumbed down and wiped it out with a flood. But then after the flood, the devil starts it all over again. Because in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, it tells us the, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, that they dwelt there. And they said to one another, go to and let us make brick and burn them thoroughly and, and, and had brick for stone and slime for mortar. Now right there ought to tell you there's something wrong. In the Bible, when God makes an altar that's for his worship, it's always made with stone. Bricks are man-made. This is a picture of a man-made monument of a man-made religion to pull the whole world together in Genesis chapter 11. One more time, the devil's trying to do what he's trying to do because he wants to stop Israel. He wants to stop Christ. So he thought in Genesis 6, I'll take over the world and stop it that way. Then in Genesis chapter 11, one more time, I'll stop it this way. Verse 6 says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they now begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Genesis chapter 11 is a great picture of the great coming one world government. The unity of all nations aligned with the devil to take over the world and to stop God's plan. And this time... Uh, you know, in, in our time period, it, the people of God will devise a wicked imagination against God's people and the things of God to stop you. I showed you this last week in Job chapter 21 and Job chapter 22, how the people wanted nothing to do with God, how they rejected the Almighty. They're not even asking, who is the Almighty? They're now asking, what is the Almighty? Oh, these things fit right through your Bible. Now look at the fifth one. Wonder where we'll put this one. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. Now this time period will begin after they come out of Egypt. In Exodus and start on their journey to the Holy Land. Called the Promised Land. Called Canaan's Land. Called Beulah's Land. Now follow this. In Exodus chapter 20... Moses gets the Ten Commandments. And commandment number one is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The next, <laughs> the next 1,500 years is nothing more than a record of them running after other gods and forsaking the God of their fathers. I mean, you talk about feet that be swift in running to mischief. And again, it's through their association with all the people who hate God, the mixed multitude, 
And it, the whole Old Testament from this point up to the book of Second Chronicles is nothing more than that. He gets the Ten Commandments. What happens while he's up there on the mountain? He comes down in Exodus chapter 32. They made the golden calf. They're dancing around and partying and have a great time. They thought because Moses had been gone for a period of time that he wasn't ever coming back. Instead of somebody getting up and saying, okay, I'll lead us right. Uh Uh-uh. Everybody says, let's have a party. They make a golden calf and they start running after the other gods. It's only the beginning. It's in Numbers chapter 3 that Nadab and Abihu, they go into the tabernacle to offer fire, one of the most holiest things in the Bible, and they bring strange fire, and God kills them. In Numbers chapter 11, moving on down the line, they get hung up with a mixed multitude. They forget all that God has done. They forget the crossing of the Red Sea and the great miracles of the plagues. They forget when they were in there and didn't have any water, and they got water out of the rock. And he didn't have any food and the quail came down and rained bread from heaven. No, no, no. They get back with a mixed multitude and they want to go back after the old gods in Egypt. And Numbers chapter 21, moving on down. You talk about feet that be swift and running to mischief. Numbers chapter 21, they get following Baal and all the things that are going on down. He sends down the fiery serpents that bite them. And they have to make a brazen serpent and put it up on a pole. And everybody who looks to that brazen serpent gets healed from being bitten. You got a song in your hymnal called Look and Live that's based on that story. That's a picture of Christ on the cross. In Numbers chapter 25, you have the great story of Baal Peor, where they go after Baal. And God comes down and kills them by the thousands. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua warns him in chapter 24 three times, you cannot serve God and chase after the other gods. You cannot serve God and keep running after mischief and getting into all the problems with all the other gods. They keep telling him, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Then you get into the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a great book. But to cut it all down, five times, five times in the book of Judges, they go into captivity of other nations because of their running to mischief. Now, let me show you another amazing thing here. Five times they go into captivity. In Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, they go into captivity for eight years, the Bible says. God sends them a deliverer. They get back and they're happy, you know, with God. And then in Judges chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, they get back running after mischief again. And now they serve 18 years. They get back and in Judges chapter 4, verses 1, 3, with another nation, now they serve 20 years. They get back, they have a fun time, but in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, they get messing again, running after mischief, and now they serve seven more years. And in Judges chapter 13, they get all screwed up, and now they serve for 40 years. The Bible tells you and me, and a lot of us have been like that in life. A lot of us have wasted a lot of time in our life, haven't we? Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16 that we can redeem the time. Now, I want to show you one of the greatest things you're ever going to see in the Bible along with the last other greatest things I ever showed you you see in the Bible. If you haven't figured it up yet, the Bible's got a lot of great things in it you ought to see. But this one, I love this one. In Acts chapter 13, verses 18-22, we're told that the time of the nation of Israel through Egypt up to the judges 
runs 573 years. That'll be, that'll be Acts chapter 13, verses 18 through 22. But yet when you go over into 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, talking about the same time period, we're told that it's 480 years. Oh, great mystery of the missing of the 93 years that are missing here. Now let me tell you what your Bible scholars will tell you. Let me tell you what your theologians will tell you. They'll tell you that's a mistake in your Bible. They'll tell you that two scribes writing years apart, hundreds of years apart in this case, made a scribal error. They didn't get the numbers right. One scribe put 573 years is what it's supposed to be, and the other guy over there in 1 Kings 6, he just got it figured up wrong, and he put 480. And, uh, you know, too much pizza and beer. That was their problem. You know, they got bleary-eyed and got the numbers wrong. Well, we who believe the Bible know that's not true. They didn't have pizza back then. Okay, let's see how this works. You see, I learned a long time. I'm a Bible believer. I'm sorry. I don't know where you're at this morning. I love you no matter where you're at, but I'm a Bible believer. I don't believe there's any mistakes in that Bible. I believe man makes the mistakes. You know why man makes mistakes with that number one problem the devil had? Pride. You see, I know I've been in this business for over 40 years. I know the temptation. I've seen many, many fall into it. I know the temptation it is that when you stand up in front of people and preach the Bible and you know the Bible a little degree, the idea that you can get some kind of superior attitude that you're not only superior over the people you're preaching to, but you're superior over that book. Who wouldn't like to have the ability to correct God? Now, you don't have to raise your hand because nobody would because you're all lying. But deep down inside your old nature, every one of us would have a, we'd just love to be the number one one who understands it all even better than God. That was the devil's problem. And when you get to the point that you stand in judgment of that book, you see, your first mistake is you think that book just like any other book. I read one time that all the literature in the world that man had written, if you put it on a face of the globe, uh, it would cover all the land mass of the United States of America, and then you could put it in a pile 10 miles wide and uh, deep, and you could go out past, stack it up past the orbit of the moon, 250,000 miles. That's all the books, the pamphlets, the letters, the literature that have been written since man found a pencil. And yet I want to say it to you this morning, and this is my own opinion, I can't speak for you. You could put all of that into one big pile, and you could judge everything that man wrote by one book that God wrote. It's just that simple. Now let me show you this thing. I love it. Let me show you something you don't get in the Greek and Hebrew, and the scholars couldn't figure it out. The life depended on it. The missing 93 years between the two places. Let's go back to Joshua. Feet swift, running to mischief. Now, this is a good lesson in history, but it's a good lesson for me and you. All right, in Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, they go eight years into captivity with Mesopotamia. God raises up a deliverer. He gets them out of it. They come back, and everything is fine. And then they start following after the other gods. And in Judges chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, now they spend 18 years in captivity with Moab. He sends them another deliverer. They whine and cry just like we do. He sends them another deliverer. They get out. And in Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, they run right back after the mischief. And now they spend 20 more years with Sisera. They whine and cry. He gives them a deliverer. 
And in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, they fall right back into the pattern, and now they send seven years under the Midians. They whine and cry, God send them a deliverer. And in Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 1, they spend 40 years under the Philistines. Missing 93 years. Let's see. 40 plus 7 plus 20 plus 18 plus 8, 93. The missing 93 years are found in the times in Judges that they ran after mischief. Now, the moral of our little math lesson is simply this, for Israel and for you and me. God doesn't count the time we're busy running after the things of this world. God gives you so much time in your life, gives me so much time in my life. He saved you. He puts you under uh, in his family. He loves you. He gave you a mandate. He gave you a commission. He gave you the word of God. And he's got a mission, a job that he wants you to do. Everything we do at the judgment seat of Christ or where we meet God up there is going to be based on the fulfillment of that mission. And you find in places like this where the scholars want to tell you, well, it's a scribal error and it's a mistake in your Bible. You better learn the concept of redeeming the time. Because God doesn't count the time that we're running after mischief. That's some Bible you got there. Now, when you get on to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, it's the second verse, same as the first. They're just running after mischief everywhere. One king after another. Running after the ways of Baal, getting into trouble with God, right up to where God smacks them in 606 B.C. Now, do you see where we're going with this? Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, the seven things, the seven unclean spirits, the, the seven, the seven character, unholy characteristics of the devil that God uses down through history to destroy the nation of Israel, those seven unclean spirits that come out of a man and, and went, went into that man and made his, his last state worse than the first, that's Israel. Now let me show you number six. False witness speaketh lies. This is not to be easy. Anybody ought to be able to see this one. Now, this brings us right up to the crucifixion of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 59 through 68. Now, the chief priests and the elders of all the council sought, here it comes, false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. But found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none, at least came two false witnesses. What he's saying there is that they wanted false witnesses, they couldn't find any, so they made a couple of cell phone calls and got some. And said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it up in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, answerest thou nothing? Was it within uh, uh, which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto them, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God, power coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need there be of witnesses? Behold, he hath heard this blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. And they did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Thou Christ, who is it that smote thee? You know, this is one of the most disheartening passages in the Bible for me where they're beating the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me just put it, step out of the sermon for a minute. How'd you like to show up at the great white throat judgment and be one of the guys that smote him in the face? 
I mean, can you see in Revelation chapter 20 when the whole unsaved world comes up and all these guys come up and they have to look into the eyes of a fire, burning fire, and they have to face him face to face? Boy, don't you know that's going to be a day? Don't you know that some old heckler Christian will be over there in the crowd in a, in a cheap seat, you know, and that old boy will come up and he'll look at those eyes and somebody will call out, cat call and say, hey, back there when you crucified him, you went up there and slapped him in the face while he was blindfolded. Why don't you go up and slap him now? Oh, there won't be any slapping in that day. You see, this is where the devil used the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Roman Empire to bring false witness against Christ. Purpose? Eliminate the rightful heir. We saw it in Matthew chapter 21. I showed you that parable a while back. A little background. You know, up to the Old Testament, the devil has the keys of death. This is why nobody could really come up from the dead. Nobody could ever resurrect uh, in the sense of the New Testament and have total victory over death. And the devil knows that if he can get Christ killed, or at least he thinks, that if he can get Christ killed and get the hold of death on him, that because the devil has the keys of death, that he'll have the victory. And he could claim his prize. And I'm sure that when Christ died on the cross and they put him in that tomb and his soul went down to Abraham's bosom for three days, I bet you all the hordes of hell were just throwing a party unbelievable. I bet you the devil and the crowd was high-fiving all over the place. We got him. He's in death. But boy, third changed that third day, didn't it? That Bible says when he came out the third day, he had the keys of death and hell. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, Christ, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he did, boy. But they bore false witness. Mark chapter 14, verse 55, 56 says, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witnesses against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain bear false witness against him, saying, and it goes on what they said. You see, he gets his people together to bear false witness against Christ to stop him. Jump up into the New Testament just like he'll get his people to do in the churches in the New Testament to try to stop you. Amen. Except it doesn't work. Because when the Lord came out of that tomb, Bible says in Revelation 1.18, he now had the keys of death and hell. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 says, he now has defeated the devil. Now this is what we're meaning. This is what we mean when we're talking about victory, victorious Christian life. Christ now has the victory when he came out of that tomb. From that point on in history and to now, all the devil is doing is fighting a delaying action. He knows he can't win. But you know, don't know he can't win. That's why when you don't get into your Bible and you don't grow, the devil kicks you six ways from Sunday. You haven't learned yet that you have no fear. Perfect love casteth out fear, you see. But you don't have that part of it yet. I don't, you just haven't got that part. And, you know, just as if you and I, you know, uh, don't uh, have to fear uh, the devil anymore, we don't have to fear what his co-workers, the Christians who will slander you or who will bring these things into your life. You don't have to, and bear false witness against you. I mean, it's, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, they're going nowhere. It's an abomination under the Lord, the Bible says. And it's a thing where he, 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 he bore false witness. Now look at the last one. 
and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now this is an old trick of the devil. And this one will bring us up to what the devil tries to do with Israel in the tribulation period. Now you see how we've come through the Bible? All the way back to Genesis. All the way up through the coming out of Egypt. All the way up through the kings. and All the way up to the crucifixion of Christ. Now we jump all the way into the tribulation period. And this is where the devil tries to do his final work. And this is why this one makes the rest of them the abomination. Caps it off, so to speak. This is an old trick of the devil. This one will bring us up to, as I said, what the devil will try to do with Israel in the tribulation. It's called divide and conquer. It worked perfectly in the Old Testament during the time that they were running the mischief. The devil got a couple of his boys together, one of them Jeroboam, the other one Rehoboam. You have Saul, he gets taken out of the way. David reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon loses the kingdom. Solomon's son, his name is Rehoboam. One of Solomon's mighty men of valor, one of his generals, or, excuse me, is Jeroboam. And you're going to find in 1 Kings chapter 12, these two guys split the kingdom. Rehoboam takes the two southern tribes and becomes the southern tribes. Jeroboam takes the ten northern tribes and he becomes the, the, the top half. And now from this point on, they don't get along anymore. In fact, they actually go to war with each other. And the devil knew that the way to finally destroy the nation of Israel was to divide them up. Once they got divided, it was all downhill from there. They split north and south, and now it's all downhill to destroy them. And that's, that's, what, that's what people do who are used to the devil to try to break the unity in any church. It's the same thing. And these are things you need to learn. The key unity for the key to Israel staying together with God was one word. It was unity. And the key for the church to stay together to accomplish the mission for God is unity. Nothing destroys unity more than sowing discord. So the devil got Rehoboam and Jeroboam and they split the kingdom and they had all kinds of problems. When they get into the tribulation period, he really brings the, pipe, brings the heat on. Let me show you this with Israel. If you have your Bibles and you want to see this probably, turn over to Zechariah. Zechariah will be the second to the last book in the Old Testament. You have Zechariah, Malachi, and then you run into Matthew. Can't miss it. Go to Matthew, go back two books. <clears throat> if you still can't find it, raise your hand. I'll help you. <clears throat> now, this is a great chapter. <clears throat> this is a great key chapter. <clears throat> he says in Zechariah chapter 11, starting in verse 6, he says, For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. Below I will deliver the men, every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. 
looks kind of confusing. I'm going to show you how easy it is here in just a minute. Three shepherds also I caught off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also loathed me, abhorred me. Then said I, I will not feed you that that, 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 that dieth, let it die. And that, that is to be cut off, let it be cut off, and let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder. You want to mark that? I'll be back in a minute. That I might break my covenant that I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day, so that the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If ye think me good, give me my price. If not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. Notice how Judas pops into this thing here. This is all tribulation period. We know that Judas is connected with the Antichrist. This is all tribulation. <clears throat> and the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the potter at goodly price. And I was priced at them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder mine understaff, even bands that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. Now there's your Antichrist. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, tribulation, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall they seek the young one, nor heal that is broken, nor feed that standeth still, but he shall eat the flesh and the fat and tear with their claws. Now look at verse 17. Woe to the idol. See how it's spelled? Idol like false god. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his right arm and upon his right eye. We know that the Antichrist gets an eye wound and he gets, a, he gets a, a, an arm wound. All this is the devil going after the nation of Israel. But let me show you something. Let me explain it. Israel's called beauty and bands in verse 7. Let me explain that to you. She's called beauty because in Psalms 27, 4 and Psalms 90, verse 17, it's a reference to Israel who has God's glory shining on them. And in that glory of God, she's beautiful. Then you have bands. The bands will be uh, the binding of the 12 tribes together by God's word that binds them together. Now look at verse 14. The Antichrist takes Israel's glory and then he breaks the bands the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, in the tribulation, when that happens, it brings a complete sowing of discord among the nation of Israel. Matthew 24, 21 says, And there shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world. Matthew 24, 8 says, And these are the beginning of sorrow. Here it comes. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. You shall be hated for all nations for my name's sake. And then many shall be offended, and they shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many, and because the iniquity of, uh, uh, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You see there, it says they're going to deliver you up, they're going to afflict you, you're going to be hated, and you're going to be betrayed. Now that's not all. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as servant and harmless as dove. Beware of men. For they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought of, of how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour of what ye shall speak. For it shall not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. Now here it comes. And brother shall deliver up the brother to death 
and the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to it to another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. You know what he's doing? That's the end result of the devil sowing discord to the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. When he splits that kingdom and he comes down there and he splits them, mother turns against father. Children turn against their parents. Their parents turn against their children. Mother turns against her son. Son against the mother to destroy the nation of Israel, to wipe them out and to finish them off because he hates them. Every one of these seven things is a picture of how the devil attacks the nation of Israel down through the history of the Bible and the history of man in the last 7,000 years of history. He divides them through the sowing of discord and that's why it's an abomination. And this is exactly the same way he does it with God's people in churches today. Now these seven things found in Proverbs chapter 6 bring you up and show you from Genesis where pride was the number one problem up through the lies, up through the murder, right down the line from Genesis to Revelation. Now let me finish by leaving you with this. Do you know how God stops the seventh discord? He puts a stop to it here. He lets the devil go 7,000 years. He knows that the devil's not going to disrupt anything that he's doing. We've talked about it before. All history is nothing more than God moving in a direction to accomplish his plan and the devil moving to cut him off. God doesn't worry about that. God knows that he'll use and perfect everything for his honor and glory. He doesn't sweat that for a second. But suddenly he puts a stop to it. And I think for us as Christians, understanding what I gave you last week, now seeing the doctrinal application of this week, I told you last week, you Bible students would love this because this is getting down into your Bible. But when you see how God how the devil does this down through the history of man and the history of the Bible. And God just lets it go, but when it gets to the seventh one, when he's trying to wipe out that nation of Israel because he hates them, and he knows that Christ came from them, and he wants to destroy them. You know, the devil knows he's defeated. He knows now that he can't win, but you know why he keeps doing what he does? It's blind pride. It's just like a lot of God's people who are in sin, and you hear the sermons all your life, you grew up in churches, and you know you're wrong, you know you're not going to get away with it, you know God's going to clobber you sooner or later, but you just keep on doing it. You know why? Pride. Pride. Now, you've got to add a little twist with the devil. He can read the Bible. Why, well, we're told in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that he was wiser than Daniel. You think he didn't read Revelation 20? You think he doesn't know he's destined to the lake of fire? You think he doesn't know that Michael's going to get him and put him in chains and put him in the bottomless pit and he's going to burn for all of eternity in a lake of fire? You don't think he doesn't know that? You see, up to the crucifixion, he actually thought he might win. Now he knows he's not. You know what the saddest part of this whole thing is? Saddest part of this whole thing when he knows he can't win and he knows he's going to the lake of fire. He knows now he does not have a chance in any way, shape, or form. 
So he's on a suicide mission. He's on a prideful mission to destroy and damn as many souls and take them with him as he can. And people are falling right into it. He'll use the nation of Israel to destroy them and destroy the other nations. He'll use God's people to destroy the churches and destroy other people there. And he goes out the door laughing while the churches are fighting back and forth over it because he'll destroy the number one thing that Israel has to have and you and I have to have unity. And the only way you destroy unity, sowing discord. Now, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you how he stopped the seventh one. And I must confess to you, I never saw this in, in its entirety. It kind of shocked me this week when I was putting this together and I kind of jumped up and bit me. I think it's one of the neatest things I've found in a long time. I want to finish by saying this, how God stops the seventh abomination, the sowing of discord, the slander against the nation of Israel, the gossip, the tail-bearing that was going on, how he was dividing families, how he was dividing the tribes, how he was dividing everybody from Israel and within Israel dividing them. The answer is found in Revelation chapter 19. You probably want to turn over there and see this. You say, well, Revelation chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Yeah, that's the event, but let me show you how he does it. And boy, is this a great lesson for you and me. Now, we'll be done now with this. Got a lot to do today. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and a white, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now, I don't know if you picked it up yet or not, but the way that he stopped the discord, the way that he stopped all of these things from happening, wasn't just him coming back. If you read it very carefully in verse 15, what stopped it was a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth by which he smite the nations. In other words, it was what came out of his mouth in that book that shut them up. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth and he smote the nations that had been slandering Israel. Now, do you know how to stop it in any church today? Anybody home? Do you know how to stop the division in any church today? Now, we already firmly know that in any church, we already know that the devil is going to divide and conquer. We know that he's going to try to disrupt the unity. It's what he does. We've seen it very clearly. We understand that's what he did with Israel, and we certainly know that's what he does in churches today. Most of you have been in multiple churches in your life, and you know I'm telling you exactly what's true. That's how he does it. And I've never figured it out why God's people let it go on. 
I, I never did get it. I understand the issue is about two things. It's about the Word of God, but it's also about the courage to use the Word of God. Most God's people have the Word of God. The thing that's lacking, they don't have the courage to use the Word of God when they need to use it. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the way that he stopped the discourse of destroying the unity of the nation of Israel was what came out of his mouth, the word of God that smote the nations that the devil was using to try to sow discord among the nation of Israel. And I'm telling you right now, Hebrews chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says that that Bible is a sharp two-edged sword. The book you got in your hand is your sharp two-edged sword and that'll be in your heart and you want to know how to stop it in churches today when somebody starts to slander this or slander that or say this or say that. It's the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of your mouth to smite them. That's how you stop it. It's one of the most amazing things you ever saw in your life. The problem is not having the Bible. The problem is having the courage to do with your Bible what you need to do. That's the problem. A Bible-based, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, God-honoring, fearing God church should let no one, I mean no one, Not your mama, not your grandpa, not your husband, not your wife, not your best friend, not your worst friend, not your brother, your sister, your mama, or your daddy ever destroy the number one element that will keep the church together, and that is the unity. And the only way you do that is the way he stops it with Israel. The sharp two-edged sword, sharp two-edged sword coming out of your mouth. To smite the nations. Incredible passage. It shows you how that not only like last week these things line up for you and me. That we see all these things in our lives and how we deal with them. But boy it shows you how on a grand scheme of things how the devil hates the nation of Israel. Wants to destroy the nation of Israel. And uses these seven unclean spirits to try to destroy the nation of Israel. In every aspect. It started in way back in Genesis and runs all the way up. And the last one is the abomination. Destroying the bands and the beauty of the nation of Israel. Getting it to lose God's glory and then breaking the brotherhood between the tribes. And then sowing discord. If any church ever gets destroyed, that's how it gets destroyed. It gets destroyed by them losing the word of God and losing God's glory and then the devil dividing and conquering and coming in and bringing the sowing in the discord. It's all over at that point. That's why you have to stand in the pulpit. That's why you have to stand in your prayer group. That's why you have to stand wherever you stand if you can stand with a sharp two-edged sword. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have